0: Satisfaction is an incredibly rare thing in this life. It was the great 20th century British philosopher and poet, Mick Jagger, who said, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. I can't get no. The song actually ranked by Billboard magazine as the second all-time greatest pop song. And I think part of the reason for that ranking is because it really does capture the reality of our situation, as all good art does. I can't get no satisfaction. The inability to be satisfied in this life is a, a theme throughout much of popular culture. So many of the neurotic TV characters that we Watch that capture our imagination, both in comedies and in dramas on television, are only happy when they're unhappy. They're only contented when they're discontented. They cannot be satisfied. But I think we're drawn to these characters. I think there are so many of them precisely because they reflect a reality that we feel. I can't get no satisfaction. They are caricatures, to be sure. They blow out of proportion a particular human trait. But they blow out of proportion a real trait, a trait that really does exist. It is a quality that is a part of who we are. Now, it's been interesting. Over the years, there have been some attempts that have come out of Hollywood to portray satisfaction, to portray contentment. But inevitably, it seems like these get mocked. Shows like The Waltons or Little House on the Prairie. We, we mock them as saccharine, as sappy, as mugushy. And ugh. Because what did they do? They portrayed people who were just, they had problems in their lives. They had difficulties, but they were content. They were satisfied to live the lives they had. And we mock that and we ridicule that. It seems like today, if there is contentment portrayed in popular culture, it's almost always portrayed as contentment, as satisfaction based on some erroneous belief. You know, the, the contented person in the show, the satisfied person, is the one who is so zen. But Buddhism is a lie. They're satisfied based on a flawed philosophy. It's an approach to life that is just wrong. In that view, satisfaction comes from accepting the reality that good and light, good and, I mean good and evil, a light and darkness, the yin and the yang, are in this perpetual balance and neither one will either will ever win out over the other. But that's not true. And it's kind of hopeless. And so to be satisfied in today's popular culture, you just have to be zen about it, just accept it. Just live with this screwed up world and be okay with it. You know, even a small amount of reflection about what I've just said shows I'm not satisfied with our dissatisfaction. And yet we come here to this situation admitting we can't get no satisfaction and we have an option. What do we do? Do we just accept it? Do we continue grousing about it? Or is there an answer for it? I encourage you to open your Bibles to Haggai, not Haggai, it's just two syllables, Haggai. If you're not sure where Haggai is, find Matthew, the start of the New Testament, before that is Malachi, before that is Zechariah, before that is Haggai. Gives you some idea that we're getting close to the end of our little mini-sermon series here on the Minor Prophets. Haggai, uh, will begin in chapter 1 in just a moment. Before we begin there, let's pray. Lord, teach us this morning to be discontented with the evil and wickedness of this life and in our own souls, but to find satisfaction in your Christ and the work he has accomplished and is accomplishing. In his name we pray. Amen. Haggai chapter 1, verse (coughs) 1. This opening section of Haggai, by the way, Haggai is 4 sermons. It's a compilation of four sermons uh, given in, in, in a summary of each sermon. And uh, we're going to take a look at them. We're going to start here with the, if you're following along in the sermon notes, the dissatisfaction in our physical lives. And that's really the first thing Haggai addresses. Haggai one. 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. A couple of quick comments there. Uh, uh, first, it is extremely rare that we can take anything out of the Bible and date it with precision, but this is one of those times. In case you're curious how this kind of thing works, we have our calendar, and we can trace it back. We, you know, we have the, uh, uh, our calendar, we can trace it back to other calendars. We can link it to other cultures and other calendars. And what happens is this. We, if you look at ancient calendars, if we have a calendar that we can link to, and that calendar can link to something else, maybe there's a reference to, a, to an earthquake or a, a battle, and we know when that happened in our calendar, so now we can link to that other culture's calendar that makes reference on that same event. Well, we have a lot of links through Alexander the Great and the the Greek culture that he spread. We have a lot of calendar links to the Persian Empire, and we are now in the time of the Persian Empire. So because we can link our calendar to Alexander the Great, which can be linked to the Persian Empire, which is now linked here, I can tell you that this sermon came on August 29th, 520 B.C. Kind of cool. Cool. Kind of interesting that we know the exact date. And in fact, all four sermons in this book occur over a period of just four months. The last one coming on December 18th of 520 BC. So there's the historical context. We're in the midst of the Persian Empire now. And a little bit about what's said here. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Uh, That makes Haggai feel a bit like he's just merely the conduit, like he's just the, the avenue through which this came. And that's exactly how he's supposed to seem to you and to me. You say, well, that, yeah, that, that just you know, makes Haggai nothing in this. It's not that it makes him nothing. It's a great honor to be the conduit of the Lord. It's a great privilege to be God's mouthpiece. But we must understand this is not Haggai's view. This is not the, the word of a wizened, grizzled old elder who's telling us what he thinks. This is the word of God to his Finally, it's interesting, this opening sermon, this opening word of God, addresses two people in particular, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Joshua. Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jeconiah, and he was the second to last king of Judah, the penultimate king of Judah. Thus, Zerubbabel is in the Davidic line. He is an heir of King David. And in fact, if you go to Matthew's Gospel and look at Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Zerubbabel is an ancestor of Jesus. And so we have one here who is descended from David and from whom the Messiah will descend. And that is not insignificant. Now, he is here a governor. He's not listed as a king, though he plays the role of the king. He has the earthly administration of God's people So he's functioning as the king, but they're under the Persian Empire. More on that in a few minutes here. And so he's not technically the king, but but he's in that line, the Davidic line. Then we have Joshua the high priest. So right here in verse 1, we must note something. We have gathered in this one verse, Haggai the prophet, uh, Zerubbabel the descendant of the king, and Joshua the priest. We have the threefold office of Jesus Christ typified, presented to us here. Prophet, priest, and king, all gathered in this one setting. That also is not insignificant. So what does Haggai say to them? Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, not uh, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, but uh, Judah, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Okay, so why does the house of the Lord need rebuilding? Well, we've skipped forward in time by this little series of the uh, the Minor Prophets, so let me give you some background. Last week, we saw that Habakkuk foresaw the the coming of the Babylonians, that the Babylonians were going to come and uh, uh, invade Judah. That occurred on three different occasions. The first, in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem, and hauled away many of its leading citizens. Daniel was taken into captivity, probably is still a boy. Daniel was taken into captivity at that time and taken away to Babylon to live out most of his, actually all of his life there in Babylon. In 597, uh, uh, Judah was giving Nebuchadnezzar some trouble, so Nebuchadnezzar came back with his army and attacked Jerusalem again, conquered it again, then hauled away more of its leading citizens. We have a second invasion and a second uh, deportation occurring in 597. Now, something interesting happens in Judah's history. Before Babylon came the first time, back before the time of of, uh, uh, the invasion in 605, the prophet Jeremiah says to the kings of Judah... Listen, do not form alliances with the nations around you. Don't enter into an agreement with Egypt or even Babylon. Don't make any alliances. You need to stand against the opposing forces and trust God to deliver you. Now, the kings of Judah did not believe that God would deliver, and they entered all kinds of alliances, and it backfired, and they were conquered and defeated. God did not choose to deliver them since they did not trust in him. Then something happens. After the 597 invasion, Jeremiah comes to the king, whose name just slipped out of my head, comes to the king who was on the throne in Judah, and says to the king, listen, just live under Babylon's control. Stop opposing them. Just live at peace. Pay the tribute. Pay the, what you owe them. And just live peaceably under their They are God's punishment to us. Let's just live under it. Ironically, This line of kings who, when they were told to stand against Babylon, didn't. Now they're told to submit to Babylon, and guess what? They don't. The king stands up and refuses to pay the tribute to Babylon, and so Nebuchadnezzar gets fed up, and he comes a third time with his army. He invades Judah, he besieges Jerusalem, and he takes it. And this time he is fed up. Nebuchadnezzar has had enough, and he flattens the city of Jerusalem. Burns its gates, tears down its walls, and raises the temple to the ground. Utter destruction. Things are horrible at this time in Jerusalem. Read the book of Lamentations to get some sense of how bad things were. So the temple is gone. And then to make matters worse, uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes the, 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 the king Zedekiah at, the to- at this time, and he, he, he captures King Zedekiah, and in front of Zedekiah, he executes all of Zedekiah's sons. And then he puts out Zedekiah's eyes. He blinds him. So that the last thing he saw was his own sons being killed. And then he is hauled away in chains and dies in Babylon. So at the end of 586, uh, the battle took a little time, 587, 586. At the end of 586, The temple is gone and the king is gone. The presence of God among his people and the protection of God for his people are stripped away. And prophecy in the land goes silent. Now Daniel and Ezekiel would prophesy in Babylon during this time. But prophecy in Judah ceases. This is an important point in the history of God's people. God has said, you would not follow me, you would not listen to me, and so you lose me. I will not speak to you, you cannot come into my presence in the temple, and I will not provide my protector, the king. Haggai now steps into that void. It's been decades, probably about 85 years since there has been prophecy in the land of Judah. And now Haggai steps into that void and brings this prophecy now, Babylon eventually fell to the Persian Empire, and when the Persians took over um, the, uh, the king, the Persians had a different philosophy of running the world. Rather than deport people, they decided that happy subjects are, are better subjects, so we'll let everybody go back home. So they issued a decree that, to allow people to return to their ancestral homes. That decree is actually recorded in the book of Ezra, At least a portion of that decree is recorded in the book of Ezra. And so in 536, this same Zerubbabel right here, he leads the first group of people to return to Judah and Jerusalem. Now, many of the uh, Jews, the leading Jews, chose to stay behind in Babylon. They had made good lives for themselves. They were were good business people. They were profitable. They, They lived well in Babylon. And Jeremiah had told them to do so while they were there. And so many of them choose to stay behind more on that next week when we get into Zechariah. But many of them choose to stay behind in, in Babylon. But some come back and they bring with them that wealth, that prosperity to rebuild the land. Can you imagine the excitement? God has taken us away from his land It's been 70 years. The temple's been destroyed for about 50 of those years or more. We've been been in uh, uh, exile, and now we get to go back. And now we get to take this wealth, we get to go back to the land, we get to rebuild it. There had to have been a lot of excitement. And Ezra records how they they began work right away on rebuilding the temple. But that quickly stalls out. How did Haggai say it here? These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They got sidetracked. Other things became more important. And they did not build God's house. Picking up in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? may not seem like much to us today, but a paneled house back then was a big deal. Rather than just having uh, walls of, of bricks made of clay, or perhaps if you were slightly wealthier, walls made of stone, these were warmer, softer environment. Rather than a cold stone environment, it was a paneled house. And by the way, it may not ring in your ears, but part of what was meant to ring here is not just that you live in a paneled house, but, oh, that's right, when Solomon built the first temple... He paneled it. It was lined with cedar paneling. So the house of God lies in ruins while the people live in pretty nice houses themselves. Is kind of the point here. Verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat. Now listen to the wording here. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves. But no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. I think it is a mistake to portray this as a time of poverty in the land. In fact, the verbiage there, the wording there, implies that they actually do have physical things. It doesn't say that you go without eating, it says you do eat, but you are not actually satisfied. I don't know what just happened there. It was weird. Me just a moment. Sorry about that. Technical difficulty. They do have food, but they're not satisfied with it. They do have something to drink, but they're not satisfied with it. They have clothes to wear, but they're not satisfied with it. I can't get no satisfaction. They are not happy with what they have. You know what's interesting? Here's something you, you may know, you may not know. It's not like you'd ever go look this up unless you were preaching a sermon like this. It's interesting when you consider the world's wealthiest nations, those that have a great amount of stuff in this life, where they fall among the, the rate of suicide. If you look at nations like Germany, Japan, the United States, Sweden, some of, these, some of the wealthiest per capita countries in the world, all in the top quartile among the world's suicide rates. All of them in the top quartile in the world's suicide rates. We don't have satisfaction with the things we have. Continuing in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, the temple, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, it, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of your, you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and I have called for a drought on the land and the, hills on the, uh, and, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Sixteen years have passed since they began the work on the rebuilding of the temple and in sixteen years they laid a few foundation stones and that was it. And they have busied themselves with their own things. Not bad things, by the way. It's okay to build your own house. It's okay to to provide for your family, to have a nice place to live. The problem is not that they built themselves houses. It's that they've built themselves houses, and it didn't dawn on them to go thank God for them. They have their nice panel houses... And nobody said, hey, we should make a thanks offering to our God. Because if somebody had said that, they would have said, well, where do we do that? How do we do that? Oh, yeah, let's talk to the priest. Let's open the book of the law. Oh, that's right. We go to the tabernacle or the temple and we make that provision. Oh, wait, there is no temple. Hey, if we want to thank our God for these things he's given us, we kind of need to rebuild the temple now. And it never crossed their mind. You see, this is not ultimately about a temple, the building. It's about their attitude toward God. They don't have a desire to thank him for what they have. They don't have a desire to return to him now that they're in the land. They're pretty uh, happy to just go about their business. Ironically, they're not happy going about their business. What God says is, you're dissatisfied with everything you have. You can't get no satisfaction because you're not looking at what you have in the right way. Interesting study from the San Francisco Federal Reserve, fairly reputable organization, the Federal Reserve. The San Francisco Federal Reserve did a study a couple years back, and they found something interesting. Those who make... Less money than those around them, than their neighbors and friends, and they know it, have a significantly higher suicide rate than, those, uh, than the general population. Those who make less money than the people around them and know it have a significantly higher suicide rate. Why? Because they're focused on what they don't have. I don't have that new car that my neighbor has. I don't have the new pool that my brother installed. I don't have the new whatever, whatever, whatever. And their focus is not on what they do have and the thanksgiving for that, but on what they don't have. Why are these people dissatisfied? Because they haven't stopped and looked at what they have. They haven't said, "Look at, we're actually doing pretty well. God has blessed us. This is amazing." And they have not taken that as a reason to return to the temple and worship God to the point where they haven't even noticed that the temple doesn't exist. You can't get satisfaction. In part, it's because you have chosen to focus on the wrong thing and chosen not to be thankful for what you have, not to take it and see how you could bless God with it, How can I take what God has given me, go to his temple, and bless him with it? How can I glorify him through it? Keeping up with the Joneses will lead to dissatisfaction. Thankfulness to God leads to satisfaction. The next section, verse 12 through 15, are a a, a preacher's favorite, but we don't have time to go into it. Why do preachers love this section? Because the people immediately respond to the Sermon of Haggai. It's a record of how they got busy right away doing what Haggai was telling them to do. Every preacher loves that section. We're going to go on. We're going to move on now to chapter 2. We've looked at the dissatisfaction in the physical lives of the people in Judah. Look now at the dissatisfaction in their spiritual lives. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, October 17th, if you're interested, about seven weeks later, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. By the way, it's it's Joshua who's the high priest, not Jehozadak, his father. So his name is Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and he is the high priest. In case there's some confusion there. And to all the remnant of the people. Now notice this sermon is not just for the two leaders. It's for all the remnant of the people. And say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it it not as nothing in your eyes? Okay, so real quickly, the temple was destroyed in 587. Here we have the foundation being laid, as we read in our Old Testament reading this morning. This is not the completed temple, but rather the foundation, the, the, the first work is being done. They've kind of marked it all out, laid it all out. I remember some years ago when my parents bought the property up in northern Michigan and we were going to build a hunting cabin. What we did, one of the first things we did, we went out there, we looked for the right spot, and then we kind of laid it out. and we And It's that idea of getting that vision for what's going to be. And that's what we have going on here. Now, it's about, it's 520 BC, the temple was destroyed in 587, so it's been 67 years with no temple. That means some of the senior citizens in this group can remember the temple. Those in their 70s and 80s actually saw the temple. They worshipped at the temple. And what we have here is a Haggai's version of what we saw in our Old Testament reading from Ezra. We have some people disappointed with this temple. They got all fired up, all excited to do the work of the Lord, to get focused on spiritual things, and they start to lay it out and they go, this is it? This is lame. This is pathetic compared to what Solomon's temple was. By the way, when they saw Solomon's temple in 587, it was pathetic compared to the day Solomon dedicated it. It had been stripped of most of its gold different invasions through the centuries. When Solomon dedicated it, it was filled with gold and jewels and bronze and silver, more silver than could be measured, more bronze than could be weighed out. Estimates are that the original temple in today's dollars would have cost somewhere around $5 billion to build. Most of that wealth had been stripped away. So what they're remembering was just a mere shadow of what Solomon dedicated. Let's keep reading here. Yet uh, verse 4. Yet now be st- be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Jeho- Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land." In my introduction, I made a reference to Buddhism, and I said that it was flawed, and here we see its flaw. Good and evil are not going to be in some kind of perfect balance for all time. Good is going to win. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth, He is going to win out over evil. Buddhists make the mistake that Peter warns us about. Peter, in his uh, second uh, uh, epistle, tells us that there will be those scoffers in the last days who will say, well, things just continue as they always have since creation. It's always been this way, and therefore, it will always be this way. That's the flaw of Buddhism. It looks around at the world and sees good and evil and struggle against one another, and it concludes that it will go on like that forever. Uh Uh-uh. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. He is going to win out. Verse 7. By the way, by the way, where do we see this begin to be fulfilled? Do you remember Matthew's gospel? When Christ died on the cross, what happened? There was a great earthquake. The world was shaken. The rocks split. Graves opened up and many of the saints began to walk about. And the veil was torn in the temple. The beginning of this shaking of the earth occurred at Christ's death. Verse 7, And I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Perhaps you know this from the King James Version. The desired of all nations. It's actually a more literal translation. The desire of all nations will come in. And I will fill this house with, with glory, says the Lord of Hosts. Yeah, you know, there's a reason that Luke wants us to know that twelve-year-old Jesus went to the temple and wowed everybody. Twelve years old—that's important in Jewish culture. He's not even a man; he's a boy, and he knocks their socks off in the temple. Glory was returning to the temple. He was coming back. What does Jesus go on to promise? That if you destroy the temple, he will rebuild it. He himself, pointing to himself as the temple, as the one who would be raised from the dead. Keep reading there in verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The people are looking at the temple. They're looking at this pathetic little foundation, this teeny tiny building, this mere shell of what it once was, and they're going, this is a a poverty-stricken God. This God is broke. He's got nothing. If the temple is the glory of God on earth, then this is pathetic. And God must be poor. And God says to them, no, don't forget. It's not about the building itself. It's about the God behind the building. The God to whom the building points us. And that is me, God says, and I own everything. I may not at this moment choose to bring it to this temple. I may not choose to put all my gold and silver here right now. But it's still mine. I am a wealthy God. I own it all. It's an important lesson, by the way, for us for the church as a whole across the world, but particularly for Shore Harvest, as as pandemics and and family situations and and sin take people away from our church, we could look at it and go, it's just a shell of what it once was. Some of you are here, you can remember the glory days of Shore Harvest, and you look at this and you go, "This this is lame, this is pathetic. Our God must not be up to anything at Shore Harvest. That's what those people thought. And Haggai said, no, 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 don't look at it that way. Don't look at the physical outward things and think that that is an indication of what God is doing. We must be guarded about looking at the outward and judging the inward. We must be very careful about that. Verse 9. Why do we have to be careful about how we look at the outward things? Because uh, uh, God says through Haggai, listen, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Looking back can be a mistake. We don't want to look back at the good old days to quote another 20th century pop culture uh, uh, icon Billy Joel said the good old days weren't always good we have this mistake of looking back and thinking that, that what was then was what we have to return to and the people of Israel have been doing this for centuries now we got to get back to David and Solomon we got to get back to the days of David and Solomon we got to get back to the time when our church was like this we got to get back to the time when, when our culture was like this we got to get back to the 1950s and everybody got everybody was, No. There is no time in the past that is a goal for which we ought to strive to return. Our hope is not rooted in what we once were, but what we will be. You can see the mistake the people made in Jesus' day. King Herod had begun to refurbish this temple. King Herod doubled the temple in size. He began to bring wealth back into it. He began to restore it. The people began to become excited again about Herod's temple and about the second temple. And and Jesus stands there in the temple and he says, listen, the queen of Sheba is going to rise up on the judgment day and judge you all because she got to see Solomon's temple. Blows this thing away, folks. And then what does Jesus say? And something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus stood in the temple and said, You're looking for gold and jewels and size and grandeur? Look at me. I'm the glory of this temple. You come to the temple to meet with God. I'm now the way you go to God. I'm the one the temple was telling you about. It's why Jesus uses all this temple imagery in his, in his earthly ministry. There was bread in the temple. He says, I am the bread of life. There was a lamp, Sam, in the temple. He says, I am the light of the world. It's why the veil was torn in two at his death. The things that they were looking for, they needed to look to Jesus. But then we got to be careful. What did we see in the New Testament reading? From Hebrews, the author of Hebrews quotes Haggai and he points out, yes, there has been a shaking, the coming of Jesus, but there will yet be another shaking. Now, if you've been with us through our Minor prophet series, you ought to be familiar with this by now, that there is this now and not yet, this sort of begun but not completed sense of how the prophecies are fulfilled, that with Christ's first coming, these things are underway and they're begun. But the author of Hebrews says, yet there is still coming a day when all of this will be shaken away and an unshakable kingdom will take its place. Dissatisfaction in our spiritual lives is going to come when we look at the outward things and try to judge the inward. When we look at what is or what has been instead of looking at where we're headed and what will be. And I don't mean what will be. This is not some declaration, this is not some prophetic declaration about the here and now earthly future of Shore Harvest Church. This is about the future of the church. That it will win out, that it will survive to the end, and then it will be glorified, purified, and made the bride of Christ that it's supposed to be. That's what we've got to remember the promise is. So what is the cause and the cure of dissatisfaction? Haggai 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, this is that December 18th day, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law we got a little object lesson going on here. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, okay, how about this situation? If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. Again, that dissatisfaction. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me. This is a reference to the like days of Amos and things like that, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, mark this day, God says, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine. We heard about that uh, in our psalm this morning. The fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. What's going on here? Well, Haggai is painting a picture of how sin works and how holiness works. Perhaps more importantly, how they don't work. And he says, listen, if there's a holy something, a piece of holy meat, a piece of meat that's been blessed by the priest, it's being offered to God in the temple, and you carry around that holy meat and you bump into something unholy, does the unholy thing become holy just by contact with the holy? And they say, well, no, that's not how it works. And he says, well, what about the other way around? If you have something unclean and you happen to bump into it, do you become unclean? And they say, yeah, yeah, that is how that works. Sin spreads easily. Sin spreads readily. Unholiness uh, uh, happens without any effort. It just spreads through the people. So how then is holiness, how is cleanliness restored? Well, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus opens up the first five chapters with an account, a description of a bunch of different offerings, the grain offering, the drink offering, the sin offering, and the Thanksgiving offering, all these different offerings. And then, I, I see Leviticus 5 or 6, I can't remember, it's right in there, it tells you basically, so what are these offerings about? Well, one, when one is unclean, they come to the tabernacle, later the temple, and make this offering to God they must come to God to be made clean and haggai says guys there's nothing you can do on your own to be made clean why are you dissatisfied in life because you're sinners and sinners ought to be dissatisfied with being sinners The problem is not that you're dissatisfied with this uh, broken-down, decrepit world. The problem is that you're looking for satisfaction in all the wrong ways. You're looking for your satisfaction by pursuing more physical things. You're looking for satisfaction by the outward glory of my temple. And Haggai says, you need the temple not because of its outward glory but because of its inward reality. That's where you meet God. And that's where you get cleaned up. You don't get cleaned up to go to the temple. You go to the temple to get cleaned up. You don't straighten yourself out to go to God. You go to God to get straightened out. How then do we go to God? Through the temple. Who claimed to be the temple? Who said, I am the temple. I am the embodiment of God. I am the word become flesh. Jesus is that temple. He is the place we meet with God. It's why in the New Jerusalem there is no temple, according to the book of Revelation. Because the Lamb walks the streets. We don't need an outward picture of his presence. He will be physically, literally present among us. And we will be clean by virtue of being in his presence for all of eternity. So what do we do in the meantime? Flip over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3, 16. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you... Are God's temple. And that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Careful how you read that. As Americans, we tend to hear that you singularly always. If your Bible's like mine, it's footnoted there. In the Greek, it's a plural you. Tomorrow, from our southern brothers and sisters, it's y'all. Y'all are the temple. For where we used to live in Pennsylvania, you guys. You guys are the temple. It's not me individually that is the temple. It is the body of Christ collectively. You see, Jesus is the true temple. Then he turns around and says, and you are my body. You are my presence on the earth. We want to go into God's presence. We come to church. Not the building, but the gathering of the saints of God. And we come among them. And we are uh, renewed again. By the way, it's one of the reasons the scriptures tell us to confess our sins to one another. So we can go to the body of Christ and be cleansed. And be washed anew. Renewed in faith, renewed in the hope of Christ our Savior so that we can not be satisfied with the way things are, but be satisfied with the fact that God's on the case. And one day things will be different. Finally, going back to Haggai, looking at the very end of Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse twenty. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak, uh, same day. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now notice, we've had a, a sermon to, governor, to, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. We've had some sermons to uh, 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 Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people. Notice this is a word just for Zerubbabel. Saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. There it is again. To overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. If you've been with us through this Minor prophet series, hopefully by now this language is beginning to sound a little familiar. What is this? This is judgment. This is what we've seen over and over and over again. God's description of judgment, the destruction of the wicked overthrowing the powers of this world, overthrowing the nations. And again, if you've been with us through the Minor Prophets, you probably should now be saying, well, I know when that happens. I've learned that that's what happens in the day of the Lord. Look at the next verse. On that day. Here it is. Haggai picks up that same theme. This is a technical term at this point in Old Testament history for the day of the Lord. On that day. Day declares the Lord of Hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel. Declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Declares the Lord of Hosts. Let's close out quickly here. Flip back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-four, Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-four, Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-four. As I live, declares the Lord. Though uh, uh, Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are uh, are afraid, even in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Haggai tells Zerubbabel that God is going to make him a signet ring. This is to harken back to this language right here. Right before the Babylonians came and conquered, God said to the king, Then, though you are my signet ring, I am tearing you off my hand. And I am letting you be trampled by the Babylonians. What's going on? The signet ring was the mark of authenticity. It was the mark that it belonged to the king. It was a way to stamp things. You could take hot wax, hot clay, you could press that signet ring in there, and it would be a seal. Remember back then, jewelry wasn't mass produced. It wasn't like everybody could have a copy of this ring. There was but one of these in existence, and so it became a mark of authenticity. Sunday school a couple of weeks ago, we studied the, 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 the uh, 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 sacraments, and we talked about the fact that they are a sign and a seal of God to us, that we are sealed, the signet ring. And God says, listen, the king has been my signet ring, my, my seal upon my people. I put David on the throne. I have continued to keep his sons on the throne throughout these centuries as a mark that you're my people. And now to Zedekiah, I strip it away. I take that away. But then during the restoration, though the temple doesn't look like much, though uh, the, the, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem hasn't yet occurred under Ezra and Nehemiah, Though things are in rough shape, God says to Zerubbabel, listen, I'm going to make you my signet ring. Now, Zerubbabel doesn't last long enough to ever become king, so what's going on there? It's a restoration of the type, it's a restoration of the picture. It's a restoration. God is again saying, again, I will have leadership over my people. Again, I, am, I have not abandoned my covenant to David. Here is David's son, and I am saying to him, again, you are my signet ring. Why? Because he's still pointing forward to the one who is David's ultimate son. The one who is both the Lord of David and the son of David. Because the promise of Haggai is not a promise of a restoration to the good old days. Because the word of Haggai to God's people is that the good old days are going to look pretty lame compared to the glorious future. The good old days are going to seem as nothing in your eyes compared to what I have planned for you. We must not look back to some good old days in our history or our nation's history We must look, if we're going to look back, it can only be to the work begun by Christ. A work that is fulfilled in him, though it is not yet fulfilled in this world. And we must look forward, as the author of Hebrews says when he quotes this, to the day when the final shaking will take place. And all of these promises of the glory of the temple, of the glory of God's people, of satisfaction in our God, will happen because it will be realized in time and space here on this earth. We will be with him. He will be our God, and, he, and we will be his people. That's the message of Haggai. Look to the Christ who fulfills all of these things. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear Haggai this morning and to be a, a joyful about it, To be satisfied with what you have done and what you are doing. Not satisfied with a sinful world, not satisfied with our brokenness, not satisfied with the ways that we fail you, but satisfied in you. Knowing that you have begun a work, you have begun to shake the nations through Christ. You are continuing to shake them through your church, and you will one day finally sort this all out. Shake it all out down to the bare skeleton. Separate the sheep and the goats and bring us as your sheep into an eternal presence with you. Teach us to look forward to that glorious day and to hope in that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.